Welcome to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm James Lalonde, your host. Today, we have the best-selling author, Parag Khanna, who's going to discuss uh, Connectography, his latest book, and his upcoming book, The Future is Asian. And we're going to have him do that in the context of the Belt and Road. Now, Parag is an amazing public speaker. He's had numerous TED Talks. His books are always filled with incredible insights, and we had a really great uh, discussion, which I'm looking forward very much to sharing with you right now. Hello, Parag. Could you introduce yourself just a little bit as we get started? Sure. Hi, James. I'm Parag Kanda. Uh, I'm currently the managing partner of FutureMap, a firm that I founded. It does scenario analysis, leveraging data and qualitative forecasting to build scenarios uh, for companies and governments who are our clients around the world. Uh, my background is as a political scientist doing international relations, political economy and geopolitics. Uh, I grew up in uh, India, the United Arab Emirates, New York and Germany. Uh, I studied at Georgetown, then did my PhD at the London School of Economics. I've worked in think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations, at Brookings, World Economic Forum, and New America Foundation. And I also served briefly in U.S. Special Operations Forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I've lived in quite a few different places, uh, particularly New York, London, Geneva, Berlin. And now with my family, we reside in Singapore. Well, that's just an incredible set of experiences you've had, Parag. Now, in your last book, Connectography, you talk about a new form of competition through connectivity and how national borders are really becoming increasingly irrelevant. And so could you explain to our listeners what you mean by this and how it might pertain to those of us who are watching China closely? Absolutely. You know, before we talk about the competitive dimensions of connectivity, the most important thing to point out is that connectivity is the most fundamental mega trend, really the trend of all trends throughout all of human history. I actually try to go back, uh, you know, seven, eight thousand years and point out that really the one constant in human activity over millennia is that with whatever technologies we have available to ourselves, whether it is stone tools to uh, high-speed railways to fiber optic internet cables, we actually use those technologies to connect human societies to each other, principally cities to each other, as much as possible. And that uh, really is important because you have to then appreciate the fundamental unit of human social organization is the city, uh, not not the politically bordered state. Cities we've had for 7,000 years, empires for a couple of thousand years, 
modern nation states for only a couple of hundred years. So empires rise and fall, countries come and go, they're collapsing all the time. The cities are truly eternal. So connectivity between cities is actually the most fun, sort of fundamental mega trend uh, in the world and is accelerating all the time. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily peaceful. There is a competitive dimension. And that's where the contrast between political borders and connective infrastructures comes in. It's not that one is necessarily you know, superseding the other. It's that one transcends the other. So, for example, I don't argue that borders are irrelevant. In fact, I argue that there are more borders than ever in history. When the United Nations was founded, it had only 51 members. Today, it has 200. So as a political geographer, you know, my training is to factually point out that, in fact, you know, borders have never more, mattered more in many ways than they do today. We certainly have more sovereign units than ever before. We have rising nationalism. We have a lot of secessionist movements, movements that seek to lay down more borders, in fact. But what's happening that's fun, more fundamental, deeper, longer lasting than all of that is that we're investing a lot more in building more connectivity and infrastructure across those borders. And so to have maps of only political geography that show us how we're divided from each other is inadequate to explain the world. In fact, to really explain you know, almost every day of our human lives today, you have to look at the functional geography, which is the geography of the connectivity of the infrastructure that literally connects us all to each other more and more every day. And when I say we compete over it, it's because it has tremendous value. Uh, the, 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 the networks of stock exchanges, the railways, the oil and gas pipelines, all of those have tremendous financial value and they connote political leverage and all sorts of new dynamics between and across countries. So as much as they can pr promote competitive, comparative advantage in economic terms and sort of optimize our distribution of resources around the world in a positive way, they also become more important than borders in the sense that they actually carry a lot more value. So we compete over them, uh, getting the maximum value added. And supply chain competition, like today's trade wars, is actually an example of competing over connectivity. Absolutely. And you've mentioned in your books and on your TED Talks about a future world that's really driven by cities and supply chain infrastructure and these special economic zones. Well, you know, that sounds exactly what the Belt and Road Initiative was set up to accomplish. So given that, how do you see the implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative? You know, it's now over 60 countries at this point, yet not really focused on countries as much as it's focused on trade. We're five years into the Belt and Road Initiative, as announced by Xi Jinping, Regarding this Chinese-style articulation of a connectivity strategy, what is working and what isn't so far? Sure. Let me first point out that Belt and Road fits into a long pattern of, again, global infrastructure build-out. You know, the, it was in the late 19th century that America took the lead in, in infrastructure investment, then Europe after, uh, after, the, after World War II. And then Asia really took center stage in infrastructure investment, starting with the, in the 60s and 70s with Japan, South Korea, and then, of course, China in the 1990s. And the 1990s is a critical period to reflect on in the beginning of Belt and Road conversation, because there, too, Belt and Road isn't necessarily new per se. I have spent much, of, much time in the last 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union 27 years ago traveling in the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. And that was when I began to see that China was making significant infrastructure investments in its neighbors, countries like Kazakhstan in particular, in order to build oil and gas pipelines to reach the Caspian Sea. So to me, Belt and Road has been happening for literally a quarter century. Only in the last five years has it acquired a new name and a new acronym 
and become a multilateral enterprise, not only with Belt and Road being a sort of movement or campaign with many, many members, but also with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and other institutions coming up to back it. So now when we say Belt and Road, what we are talking about is the largest coordinated infrastructure investment campaign in human history. And that's very significant because infrastructure is tended to be something that's domestic, that is done primarily through government spending. Here, we now have many countries collaborating in their infrastructure uh, development. It's certainly multimodal and intermodal. It, tra it uh, covers transportation, energy, communications, many other areas. And it's not only public funding, obviously with a strong jolt of support from China and financing from China, but it's multilateral and it's certainly also public-private as uh, the world's financial institutions get behind this project through risk guarantees, uh, foreign investment, and other kinds of uh, instruments. So over the last five years, we've seen, you know, uh, actually at Belt and Road is off to a very big start, uh, not only rhetorically, but in terms of the volume of capital that's being committed uh, to some of the critical countries and to some of the cross-border projects. But again, it builds on things that China has been doing for a long time bilaterally, through its uh, development banks and, and lending institutions. And it will grow and expand over time as the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, and again, the entire private sector get involved. So, you know, there are, uh, you know, pluses and minuses, of course, uh, you know, over the last uh, few years, we see that some projects under the rubric of Belt and Road are sailing towards completion, and others have had a bit of a, you know, stop-start as a result of issues related to costs, financing, debt, and so forth. Generally speaking, with all of uh, many of the infrastructures that I've mapped out in the Connectography book, um, you know, I see that supply and demand is the critical factor. And the demand dimension is really crucial to appreciate, uh, which is to say that you have five, and a, five billion people just in Asia. You know, you have uh, six billion people across um, Europe and Asia together on the Eurasian landmass. Many of these countries are small, poor, frail, weak, post-colonial countries wh whose populations have tripled or quadrupled. They don't have stable electricity supply. They don't have good railways or roads. So the fact of the matter is that Belt and Road is existentially necessary for most of these countries. And one project here or there may be renegotiated, may be canceled, but I expect the vast majority of them to move forward because they're done in a way in which there's a mutual and collective decision-making process around what infrastructures a country actually needs and, uh, and what should be invested in. Now that's important, and it's really hard to get this concept across. You mentioned in one of the TED Talks uh, that I watched, uh, as you define Silk Roads and the fact that these are really independent, trade-focused initiatives based on mutual trust and in connections you know, along the trading routes. And a lot of people see Belt and Road being not that, but more of a political strategy. And the Chinese, while they're the first to say it's not, not everyone believes them. You know, if you know the China history, you know, they, they try things. They tried what they tried in the special economic zones. And things that worked got expanded. And things that didn't work were kind of shut down or phased out. And I think Belt and Road in its various um, instances of execution on the ground are, is similar. So how do you explain this to people when you're traveling around the world, particularly the concept that this is the largest infrastructure build out in the world, but without letting it getting pegged as a China-led, China-run, China thing? I think a lot of people get sidetracked as soon as they hear that the initiative came from China. 
Right. You know, there, there's a couple of dimensions to this that are very important. Uh, first of all, again, you know, cross-border infrastructure investment is a particular kind of foreign investment where once it's laid down, once you physically build a port or a railway in another country, uh, you can't take it back later on, right? So yeah. it's not, you know, it's difficult to, uh, though many people do, describe Belt and Road as a Chinese political uh, project. It is a strategic project in the sense that by building infrastructures across Eurasia to reach the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf and Europe uh, and even the Arctic, um, the purpose there is most certainly to evade the Malacca trap, right, to avoid the trap of most oil and gas inflows and finished goods and product outflows to have to sail through the narrow Straits of Malacca, which I happen to live on right here about 500 meters from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and you can see all the ships going back and forth to Japan, China, and Korea. So dealing with that choke point is really a 19th century, even earlier, dilemma in geopolitics. It's something that every country is very familiar with, uh, most especially China today. So evading the China, the, the Malacca trap is certainly a very valid, legitimate priority for China from a strategic standpoint. And it also helps to elevate these countries, to bring them into global value chains, to connect landlocked countries to the sea. Something can be strategic and also be a public good at the same time. And infrastructure is an extremely important category of public good, and China is now the world's largest provider of it. So this is not necessarily a tension. There should not be a debate between those who view Belt and Road as a political exercise and those who view it as something that's a part of uh, economic modernization for dozens of underdeveloped countries. It is both at the same time, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I think everyone needs to get that reconciled you know, in their, in their understanding. Um, I also think that, that going back to the point about how infrastructure investment in other countries is something that you can't take back later on, there's a lot of people who see Belt and Road as a project that sort of cements or extends a Chinese uh, you know, control and influence in many of these countries. But we don't live in the world of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries where European empire simply marched into foreign countries you know, with their guns and, uh, you know, and, and, and tanks and so forth and troops and simply conquered them and turned them into political colonies that lasted for centuries. Uh, we live in a world of sovereignty, of transparency, of democracy in many of these countries. And what you see in already the last few years is that countries have a right to say no. They have the ability to renegotiate. Uh, you know, in countries like Malaysia, like Pakistan, like Myanmar. And so there's a really a push and a pull and a two-way street uh, at play here. It's not really some kind of colonial exercise because we don't live in a colonial world. So that, too, is a false uh, uh, analogy. Most importantly, to, if you look long term, because most fundamentally we are talking about infrastructure first and secondarily about who builds it, infrastructure is the sine qua non, the most essential foundation for national modernization and economic development. And what will happen over time, and I can absolutely guarantee this because every historical cycle proves it, is that by getting these new foundations of infrastructure, countries like Pakistan, Uzbekistan and others are going to become uh, more modern, more developed. They'll reform their economies. They'll diversify their economies. They'll become more attractive to foreign investors. They'll attract more FDI inflows. And as they do so over time, the Chinese share of control of leverage in those economies will actually go down. And therefore, rather than view Belt and Road as something that is necessarily sponsoring or promoting Chinese uh, dominance in those countries, in the long run, it might actually prove to diminish 
China's uh, dominance uh, in those countries because it's kicking off a process whereby the whole world actually becomes interested in those countries, whereas before nobody was interested in those countries and then only China was interested in those countries. Exactly. Once you build that railroad, you can't take it back. And once a connection is made, it's played out based on what people decide to do in their own lives. Wow, I have a bunch of questions that I'd love to ask you, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on because right now, as we record this podcast, the U.S.-China trade war is happening in a big way. And I'm sitting here thinking, why are we having trade wars in this day and age? And so I want to ask you, are trade wars something that we're going to have to live with for the next several hundred years? Or will these soon become things of the past? No, it's a great question. And I think first and foremost, people need to appreciate that the U.S.-China trade dispute does not represent the sum total of global trade. It only affects, you know, about 2% apparently of globally traded goods at the moment. So the U.S. and China trade relationship, as large as it is, is not even the largest axis of trade in the world. The Europe-Asia trade relationship is hundreds of billions of dollars more in goods and services traded every single year. And so really we need to put this in context. This is a bilateral dispute. It has global implications. But it doesn't mean that those implications are all negative. In fact, as with real war, in a trade war, the winner is usually not one of the two protagonists or antagonists. It's usually a third party. And what we already see happening is with the U.S.-China dispute, you have Europe trying to edge out the United States in exporting um, goods to China that are where the American goods are becoming more expensive because of the retaliatory tariffs. And you have a diversion of production from China for uh, in certain industries by foreign investors who are worried about the trade war to Southeast Asia, so Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. So I can identify several winners from this trade war that are not America or China. They are Germany, they are Vietnam, they are the Philippines, and Thailand. Um, so there are winners. Trade wars have winners. Um, and I think we need to, to look at that uh, very seriously because, again, the global picture shows that trade will continue to grow and expand, right? You squeeze a balloon in one place, it expands somewhere else. Uh, and that's what's going on. Trade continues to grow. Trade continues to grow at equal to or greater than the rate of global GDP growth. The global services trade, uh, which is becoming as or more significant than global goods trade, continues to grow very significantly. And it's very difficult to isolate uh, and, to, and to penalize that trade in the current dispute. So again, to put it in context, this U.S.-China trade war seems to be very significant geopolitically and geoeconomically. But global trade will continue. And, uh, and the winners will be those who keep their markets open and continue to push for market access for their companies. And that's why I actually favor Europe and Southeast Asia in this situation. So that really segues nicely into my next question, which concerns your next book. It's coming out early next year. It's entitled The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Can you share with us some of the key hypotheses that you're going to be making in this book? Obviously, you don't want to give it all away, but just the key themes? Well, actually, you know, quite frankly, I'm happy to because there's a lot in the book to chew on, as there was with connectography, with all the maps and the kind of narrative. And, you know, I think the headline uh, theses that I want to share right now are really backed up with a lot of stories and detail and history and sort of scenarios and prognosis. So I think it's, it's interesting for people to read in more depth. But re let's remember that Asia, the geographic Asia, the historical Asia, is five billion people. And uh, China is 1.5 billion of 
that population. Uh, China is, of course, about half of Asia's GDP, but you now have India growing faster than China, and you have very young populations in across South Asia and Southeast Asia, which is itself 2.5 billion people. In exactly 10 years from now, that population of, uh, of South and Southeast Asia will have a GDP as large as China today. So one of the reasons for writing the book was to point out that Asia is more than just China. Now, that's an important message, of course. It's an important message for Western audiences and for Western businesses who have been very focused on China, rightly so, over the last 20, uh, 20 years. Uh, it's also a message for Chinese people uh, to get to know the rest of Asia better. I wrote this book with both purposes in mind, to educate the West about Asia, uh, to educate Asians about each other, because really, you know, my point of departure is that Asia and Asian nations, Asian civilizations have not had much interaction with each other since in the last 500 years. Because of colonialism and the Cold War, the Asian system that existed in the 16th century, a thriving, robust network of trade spanning the Arabian Peninsula and Central Asia through India, Southeast Asia and China, um, that was splintered, fell apart. Asians began to turn inward. They were colonized. They had more significant relations with their European colonial masters than they had with each other. And only now in the past quarter century, through the opening of Asian economies such as China, through the cross-border investment between them, led primarily by Japan and South Korea and now China, um, and the Belt and Road Initiative and so forth, do you have Asians really talking to each other all the time? Asia is becoming a system again. Asians now do more business, trade more with each other, interact more with each other than they do with Western powers on a day-to-day -day basis. And the return, the resurrection of that Asian system is what this book is about, which means that Asians have to get to know each other again. Our great ancestors am amongst Asians knew each other better than Asians know each other today. And that includes Chinese. The Chinese, you know, with Belt and Road and through all of the expansion of trade and tourism and investment are traveling, of course, all over Asia, investing lots. But this current generation that's alive today has very little interaction to fall back on in understanding, um, you know, its neighbors' cultures. And that is absolutely critical as well. So I wanted, again, the West to understand Asia, Asians to understand each other. And within that, Chinese to understand their neighbors. And the book has all of those purposes in mind in explaining the return of this great Asian system. Parag, it's been a really thought-provoking discussion, and I have way more questions than I ha we have time for. But I did want to ask you one last question. That is, when you're out public speaking and you present what you know, is there one key data point that you're always surprised that people just don't get or it surprises them incredibly? Is there just one point that sticks out in your mind? There are probably a couple of things. You know, these sort of headline numbers that I've noticed really get implanted in people's minds and change the way they, they think. And the first is that, you know, we have um, about uh, uh, five to six times more kilometers of global infrastructure connectivity, the railways, pipelines, highways, than we have borders, right? Far, far more volume of connectivity than political division. And yet we don't map that. So that's why I make those maps of functional connectivity and infrastructure that people can see that we are, in fact, much more connected than we are divided. And the other is, uh, just to repeat the one I just mentioned, that Asia has 5 billion people. Right. And again, only 1.5 billion of them are Chinese. So, you know, the further and, and those other Asian societies are by and large younger in terms of their median age.
age than China is. So you will have significant demographic flows within Asia to meet those uh, mismatches between uh, between population uh, aging populations and younger populations. So that's another one, um, you know, and I find that that uh, this this really does strike people because political narratives and day to day events and news tend to shape, uh, perhaps you know, misshape in a way the way we look at reality, and the reality is in fact reflected in some of these key figures that I like to share. Well, thank you, Parag. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. We're going to look forward to your new book, "The Future Is Asian: Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century." And we're going to hope to have you on the podcast again someday. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, a real pleasure, James. Great talking to you. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.